We're actually going straight to the sermon this morning. Um, Philip Yancey. Philip Yancey tells the story of Simon Wiesenthal. He was the foremost Nazi hunter of the post-World War II era. A Polish Jew, he saw his own grandmother killed by the Nazis in the stairway of her own home. He saw his own mother pushed into a cattle car filled with elderly women never to be seen again. Simon Wiesenthal lost 87 of his relatives in the Nazi Holocaust. He wrote a book after the war called The Sunflower, in which he detailed his own experience as a prisoner working in the Nazi work camps, where he was assigned as an elderly in a prison hospital, sweeping floors, mopping floors, putting out the garbage. One day, a nurse came, and she grabbed him, and she asked, Are you a Jew? Are you a Jew? And she hustled him through a labyrinth of hallways to a private room where lay an SS officer who was approaching his own death. He was wrapped in gauze so that his eyes were covered. Only his nose, mouth, and ears were exposed. Wiesenthal writes of of the experience in which this SS officer says to him, My name is Carl, and I must tell you, of this horrible deed, I must tell you, because you are a Jew. Carl reminisced about his Catholic upbringing, his childhood faith, and how he'd lost it all in the Hitler Youth Corps. Carl explained how he'd been in Ukraine, and his, his unit had stumbled onto booby traps uh, that had killed 30 of their soldiers. And as an act of revenge, the SS rounded up 300 people who were Jews, herded them into a three-story house, doused the house with gasoline, and fired grenades at it. The screams from the house struck in his mind. He talks about seeing a man with a small child in his arms whose clothes were alight. He talks about seeing a woman, the mother of her child. He talked about a man who covered the child's eyes with one hand and held him with the other and then jumped into the street. Seconds later, the mother followed. Anybody who escaped was shot to death. And as Carl kept describing the horrific, evil events that he experienced, he always went back to a young boy with black hair and dark eyes who fell from the building and became target practice. Carl said to Simon Wiesenthal, I am left here alone with my guilt. And in the last hours of my life, you, a Jew, are with me. I do not know who you are, I only know that you are a Jew, and that is enough. I know that what I have told you is terrible. And in the long nights while I have been waiting for my death, time and time again I have longed to talk about it with a Jew and to beg you, 
pleas for forgiveness. Only I didn't know if there were any Jews left. I know what I am asking is almost too much for you. But without your forgiveness, I cannot die in peace. Will you forgive me? Wiesenthal, who had been an architect in his early 20s, he was now at this point a prisoner dressed in a shabby uniform marked with a yellow star of David. He felt the immense crushing burden of his race bearing down on him, and he stared out the window, and and he stood, and he thought. And he says this, he says, at last I had made up my mind. And without a word, I left the room. Wiesenthal wrote his book, The Sunflower, after the war to ask whether his failure to give forgiveness was pardonable in itself. He asked scholars, he asked theologians, professors, artists, poets, he asked all sorts of intellectuals throughout Europe and America for their opinion of what he had done. He asked Jews, and he asked Catholics, and he asked Protestants, he asked priests and rabbis. He wrote a book about all of their responses. One American professor said, the enormity of the crime exceeds all possibility of forgiveness. A novelist told him, let the SS man die unshriven, let him go to hell. And one Christian responded, I think I would have strangled him in his bed. And Philip Yancey, who writes of this, says this. He says, I was taken aback by the near unanimity of the responses. I expected more of the Christian theologians to speak of mercy in the face of the most atrocious and evil of sin. But in a world of unspeakable atrocity, forgiveness indeed seemed unjust, unfair, and irrational. We're going to look at a passage in which Jesus calls us to go beyond the very natural and human response of calling out for justice in the face of evil. And he calls us to something higher, something supernatural, something superhuman, something godly and different. The passage we're going to look at this morning is the second half of Matthew, chapter 18, which Matthew himself, a tax collector, forgiven massive and untold evil by Jesus. He recounts Jesus speaking into this question, of forgiveness. Last week we talked about confrontation. We talked about discipline. We talked about accountability. And this week we talk about forgiveness when your brother sins against you. It's Matthew chapter 18. We're going to read verses 21 to 35. If you would follow along, this is the gospel of Jesus the Christ. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up 
to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And since he wasn't able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all, all that he had, be sold to repay the debt. And the servant fell on his knees before the king. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, and he canceled the debt, and he let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened... They were greatly distressed. And they went and they told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This, Jesus says, is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. We're going to look at two things this morning. We're going to look at Jesus' challenge, the challenge of Jesus to forgive. And then we're going to look at the provision of Jesus to enable us to do that which is impossible. First, the challenge of Jesus. What does Jesus challenge in challenging us to forgive? We're going to ask a few questions. Who does he want me to forgive, first of all? He wants you to forgive all those people who have sinned against you. All those who are your debtors. All those who owe you because of wrongs, of things they have taken from you. Your honor, your pride, your security, your safety, your name, your comfort. The things they owed you that they didn't give you. The things they gave you that were wrong to give to you. All of your debtors. Every one of them, ask the Lord to show you. Who is he asking you to forgive this morning? Who is it that in your heart you haven't yet released? Who is it that you're still holding and judging within you? Perhaps for some of you, they're people who are no longer alive, who have hurt you and you will never see them face to face again even to confront them. Perhaps they still are. Perhaps it's somebody from your workplace. Perhaps it's a business partner or a former business partner. Perhaps it's a lover or an ex-lover, a a spouse or an ex-spouse. Perhaps it's your own children. 
Perhaps it's your own parents. Perhaps it's someone in your family. For some of you, I bet it involves somebody in your extended family. Someone close enough to inflict a wound. Maybe it's somebody sitting in a pew this morning. Who is it? Ask the Lord. Show show me the face. Who is it? Show me, Lord, if I'm not yet forgiving. Jesus is saying he wants us to forgive everyone. There are lots of reasons not to forgive. They might not really be repentant. They might pretend to be repentant, but they might not even be sorry for what they did. They might even turn around and do it again. They need to know what they've done. Let them sit in their mess a while. It'll do them good. They need to understand that actions have consequences. I was the injured party, I tell you. It's their move. It's not my move. But Jesus is telling you in this passage, speaking through it here and now, alive, resurrected, and speaking. I know that pain. I know those wounds. I know them well. I know they can be deep. I see what this enemy of yours has done to you. And their actions are inexcusable. They're worse than you realize. They are worthy of hell itself. And now Jesus says, I call you to forgive them. In this passage, Jesus mentions forgiving a brother, which in this context would mean a fellow Christian who has sinned against you. And yet elsewhere, he applies this same command to those who are not Christians, to those who are hostile to Christ. In the Lord's Prayer, which we prayed responsively, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lord Jesus, I know what it's like to forgive those who have wronged me, and I'm asking you to do the same thing because I know what it's like to forgive. That is my lifestyle. That is my commitment. That is my vow before you, Lord. I release to you what they have done to me and release my desire for revenge. Paul says in Colossians 3, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has any grievance against anyone. Bear with them and forgive them. Stephen, that early deacon recorded in the first century in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, as he was being stoned to death by fanatical religious extremists, the Taliban of his day, the ISIS of his day, the Islamic State of the first century, the most extreme, extreme faction of fanatical Jewish extremists had tied him down and were throwing stones at him and were taking his very life over a religious difference. And as they did this, He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he has said this in Acts 7, it says he fell asleep. His dying breath, a prayer to the Lord, which in the New Testament refers to Jesus, asking Jesus to forgive the extremists who were murdering him. And among those people, with a stone in his hand, among those standing in approval of his death, was a man named Shaul, a Jewish extremist. Shaul Paulus Tarsu, Saul Paul of Tarsus. 
And the Lord Jesus heard the prayer of St. Stephen. Please forgive them for what they have done. And the Lord Jesus saw Stephen's forgiveness. And he forgave Shaul. And he became Paul of Tarsus, the missionary to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. It's the power of forgiveness. Lots of reasons not to forgive, but Jesus says forgive. He doesn't say to forgive people you dislike or forgive people who annoy you or to forgive the people who decline your offer of a date, even though it's well-meaning and you've got a gift card to a really nice restaurant. He's not saying forgive people who disagree with you or of a different cultural background or life experience or a different personality type or a different political party. Why does Jesus not ask you to forgive all those people? Because they owe you nothing. They have not wronged you. When they wrong you, then you forgive them. But Jesus is talking about people who have really wronged you, people who have sinned against you. If they haven't sinned against you, then your issue with them isn't their issue, it's your issue, because you're judging them in your heart, and you're the one that needs the forgiveness. But when they've wronged you, when they haven't loved you as they ought, when they've treated you with injustice, when they've destroyed your reputation, when they've gossiped about you, when they've hurt you, when they've wounded you deeply, to forgive. I remember a friend of mine years ago. He was an angry, angry man. Always mad at everything. He could never keep a friendship more than about six months or a year because his intense anger was, it was just so intense. It would flare so massively. And I remember once talking to him and, and somebody had, had done something that hurt his feelings and, and they, really, they really had not taken into consideration his life story and where he was coming from and they really had sinned against him. And I remember him sitting there, and he was just like, if, 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 it, if it was something different, I would have forgiven, but they sinned against me. I remember saying, dude, those are the only people you owe forgiveness to. If you can't forgive those, then you've never forgiven anyone. You're an unforgiving soul with no grace, with no charity, with no mercy. If you only forgive people who haven't wronged you, then you've never forgiven the soul. And you're that servant that Jesus speaks of, the unmerciful servant of which Christ speaks. See, friends, if you won't forgive, then understand the consequences. You know, Ray Ray Cortese talks about, about how your unforgiveness and all of the resulting anger and the bitterness and the judgmentalism, it only serves to imprison you. The unforgiveness, it gets inside of us. It twists us. It deforms our hearts. It it pushes out the light and encases us in utter darkness. We hold on to the wrongs, thinking that it gives us strength, when all the while we're erecting the very bars that encage us, putting on chains that leave us slaves. We're building a prison of bitterness. It warps our soul. At the very end of this parable that Jesus gives us, The only soul that remains imprisoned is the one that refused to forgive. Frederick Buechner says this. It was your reflection quote this morning. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick our wounds, to smack our lips over grievances long past. To roll over our tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come. To savor that last toothsome morsel, both of 
of the pain you are given and the pain that you're giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. And yet, he says, the chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. See, unforgiveness, it sits in you like a Chernobyl spewing out its contamination and the fallout is all over your soul and the soul's of those around you and your sweet king here, Jesus. He's bringing to you the key to the cell door. He can set you free if you're willing. Don't stop up your ears when he's speaking to you. Unforgiveness will leave you imprisoned in darkness and gnashing of teeth under jailers that will devastate your soul until you have paid the very last cent. And what does the big-hearted Jesus say at the end of the parable? Our kind and loving Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, so it will be with you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. So what does forgiveness mean? If he's saying to forgive everyone, what does it mean? Forgiveness at heart is a cancellation of a debt. Uh, Ephesians 4 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God forgave you. 1 Corinthians 13, Love keeps no record of what? Wrongs. It's a cancellation of debt. Uh, May or may not mean reconciliation. It may or may not mean you trust the person. You see, forgiveness is something you offer to God first and foremost. It's that right to revenge. It's that right to get payback. It's that right to to brood and boil over what has been done to you. And when you forgive somebody, that is releasing that up to God, saying, Lord, I no longer claim this debt from them. I let go of it. That does not necessarily mean that you're then chummy with them because you can forgive somebody who's completely unrepentant and who has no intention of actually changing or treating you with love or dignity or respect at all. And you can't actually be reconciled to them typically until they do what? Until they own some of their guilt and seek forgiveness. And when they do that, that brings not only forgiveness, but that brings reconciliation. And you can be in relationship with them. Until they get to that point, you can't. But you can still forgive. And trusting them is something altogether different. Trust means they walk in that changed life for a long time. Uh, You know, I remember one friend of mine, she was in a really bad situation with a boyfriend. and, uh, And her boyfriend had just verbally abused her in the most horrific way. I mean, we're definitely talking off the charts. We're not talking about, gosh, I really disagree with you so much. I mean, he was calling her everything under the sun. He wrote it out in email, and each, each time it got bigger, eventually like two-point font, six-point font, eight-point font. Eventually it was like a 160-point font where each letter was just half of a screen. He went nuts on her. And afterwards he felt horrible about it. He said, please, please forgive me. And, and she, it was hard, but she did forgive him, and she didn't want to see him again. And he said, she's not forgiving me. And I was like, dude, she is forgiving me, you. She just doesn't trust you because you burned down her house, and you're saying, why won't she give me more matches? 
but to forgive, that doesn't mean you trust them. That doesn't even mean you're reconciled to them if they're not ready to meet you halfway. But it does mean you quit judging them. You quit seeking evil. And you then take their debt upon yourself. You see, that's the hard part. When you forgive a debt, the debt still ultimately has to be paid. For example, if I'm driving down Euclid Avenue, Central West End, in my 11-year-old Mini Cooper, and uh, I'm noticing a parking spot that's about this big, and I think I can fit in it. It's there because of all of you and your cars couldn't fit in it. And so I throw my blinker on, and I line up my back wheel with their back wheel, and I'm backing in, and then you happen to be coming along in your Hummer, and uh, you're not, you can't see my little Mini Cooper over the edge, and so you just crunch right over the top of my Mini Cooper, and the airbags deploy, and I'm fine, I'm okay, I'm just out one Mini Cooper. Now, let's say you don't have insurance, and let's say I've only got liability. Now, two things can happen. Either I can hold you to your debt, which is you better find you know, a good $4,000 to buy me an 11-year-old Mini Cooper. Um, or I forgive your debt. If I forgive your debt, who then has to pay to replace the Mini Cooper? I do. Forgiveness is costly, friends. If it costs you nothing, you are not forgiving them. Forgiveness means you are paying down their debt on their behalf. And that's really hard. It means, you know, there are times when you may get angry because you're paying down someone's debt. It may not mean you're unforgiving. It means you're paying down their debt. You're still continuing to forgive them. And that's really difficult. And then the question comes, how many times do I do that for them? That's the question the disciples bring. And the rabbinical answer was three times. It's the three strikes and you're out. It's actually much more generous than the human instinct, which is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The rabbis at least gave you three chances. I forgive you. You do it again. I forgive you. You do it again. I forgive you. You do it again. I chop your head off. You know, it's just that you get three strikes. Um, and, uh, and Peter... Of course, it's always Peter. He's sort of getting the gospel. He's been following Jesus. He's sort of understanding a little bit of this radical grace that Jesus is the Christ, that, that he's already said, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I have to suffer many things. I have to be killed. And then, you know, and, and, and so he's getting this notion that Jesus dies for us when we're his enemies. And so Peter says, no, not three, seven times. And you can just hear all the other disciples, ooh, isn't Peter so gracious? He's getting radical gospel. And Jesus is like, no, you're still not there yet. Seventy-seven times you forgive your brother, and you do it from the heart. There's Old Testament background here. Back in Genesis chapter 4, Lamech was bragging about how vengeful he was. And he was contrasting his vengeance with the vengeance of, Ch- of Cain. And he said, Cain, you know, Cain's revenge was sevenfold, but let Lamech's revenge be seventy-sevenfold. And Jesus is picking up on this difference and saying, to that degree I want your forgiveness, your mercy, your compassion, your grace, your release towards those who are your enemies to be not sevenfold, but 
fold, the reverse of Lamech. It's seven, a perfect number, taken to an infinite point. He's saying, there is no end to the forgiveness to which I call you. Unending, infinite forgiveness, total and absolute release of your debtors. Okay, that's the challenge of Jesus. It's an impossible challenge to forgive, meaning forgive everyone who's wronged us, meaning to release their debt, meaning to pay their debt down for them. How is it possible? How is it possible to do the impossible when you've been wronged and hurt and your life has been destroyed? And here we see the provision of Jesus To be able to forgive, you must first experience a far bigger and greater forgiveness. This is the parable he tells about the two servants. The one owes the big debt, and he's forgiven it. The other owes the other guy a little debt, and he doesn't forgive it. I've done some math in terms of calculating. You know, this first servant, he comes to the king. He's got this massive debt, uh, and then the other guy has this small debt. First, we're going to start with the other guy. The servant with the little debt to the other servant, uh, the one who wasn't forgiven, the one who ended up being treated horribly and, and got the mercy of the king. Uh, I did some math on this. Could we get that first slide? Okay. This, Jesus is saying, okay, you're the, the unmerciful servant. That's just, he's putting us in that position. And this other servant, he owes you 100 denarii. Now, a denarii is a day's wage. So that's 100 days' wages for a day laborer. We'll say $12 an hour. Uh, That's about $10,000. That's what you're owed. That's the people who have wronged you and damaged your life. He's saying they owe you $10,000, which for a day laborer, that is really hard to pay off. That's basically like uh, a six- or seven-year-old Mini Cooper. I think we have a picture. Um, You know, that's like... Not the 11-year-old with, you know, the power steering that's intermittent, but the, the one that actually still works, not too many miles, pretty good shape. That's sort of what they owe you. They owe you one of those. Now, the other guy has the debt to the king, though. You have the debt to the king, and we've got that math. You owe the king, he says, 10,000 talents. Now, a talent is 6,000 denarii, or 6,000 days' wages. So 10,000 of those 6,000 ends up 60 million days wages. So you owe the king $6 billion, which uh, if we have a a first slide, next slide here. uh, Oh, that's the wrong picture. Let's see what else we've got. We've got any more? Okay, so that's, uh, think the entire uh, gross domestic product of Greenland. And also, uh, next slide of um, the Federated States of Micronesia, and I don't know if there's another picture, but you throw in, uh, just for the fun of it, um, the entire gross domestic product of Macedonia. And that's what you owe the king. And he's going to torture you and sell you and your family unless you cough up Greenland, Federated States of Micronesia, and, you know, Macedonia at once. Now, his point there in talking about this big of a debt is the debt that we have to our king as having sinned against him infinitely, an infinitely holy God, is a debt that you will never, ever, ever be able to pay off, no matter the interest rate, no matter the installment plan. It's an impossibly massive debt. 
uh, it actually comes out to 700 Batmobiles if you bought them on the open market today. Um, there's no way. The only hope you have at that point is that the king has mercy on you and the king chooses to cancel your debt, which means the king chooses to pay down your debt for you. You realize what it took for the king to pay down your debt for you? When God, your father, said, I forgive you your $6 billion debt, that meant he had to pay it. And for that, he turned to his son, his only son, the son he loved, his firstborn, the eternal son of God, the Logos, the Holy One himself. And he gave up his son to pay down your debt. You know, the greater the love, the longer you've had it, the greater the loss. Some of you know that if some stranger that you've just met goes up to you and says, you know, this church stinks, and I think y'all have horrible singing, and I don't want to be around you because you look funny to me, and I'm leaving, and I'm never going to talk to you again, and they walk out that door, you're going to feel a little miffed, but chances are by the time you're sitting down to dinner, you're going to be fine. But if your spouse says that to you and walks out the door, or if your child, or if your parent, the longer the love, the deeper the love, the harder it hurts. And when the father gives up his son, who he has been in fellowship with from eternity, he is taking on the ultimate pain the ultimate suffering, not just the suffering of Jesus the Son, but the suffering of the Father who had to hand him over. Why would he do that? But he was paying down your debt and my debt so that we could go free. It's only God himself embracing us, forgiving us, loving us, and paying off our debt. That's the only thing, friend, that can enable you to forgive those who have damaged you and destroyed you and sinned against you the most grievously. You will never be able to come up with it yourself. You will only be able to give that if you yourself have received an even greater forgiveness, the forgiveness of the king. One pastor I listened to contrasts the story of Simon Wiesenthal with the story of Corey Tinboom when she confronted her abuser. Corey Tinboom, uh, they took Corey Tinboom's family away, the Nazis did, in the late days of World War II. Corey Tinboom was a Christian in Holland. Her family had hid Jews in their home until they were discovered, and then they themselves were sent to death camps. Corey Tinboom's father passed away there. Her sister died. And after the war, Corey Tinboom went around speaking about Christian love and speaking to audiences about Christian forgiveness until one day it happened. This was the day it happened. She says this. She says, It was in a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first 
of our actual jailers that I had seen. This is the man who had run his hands over her sister and asked inappropriate questions. This was the man, Corey says. She says, it all came back to me. The mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister's pain-blanched face, and this man came up to me as the church service was emptying, and he was beaming, and he said to me, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, to think that, as you say, Jesus has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake my hand, and I, who had preached so often of the need to forgive, I kept my hand at my side. Vengeful thoughts boiled through me. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand, but I could not raise it. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed to the Lord a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And she says, as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. It was like a lightning bolt, like electricity, firing up every neuron. A current seemed to pass into him from me, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger. It almost overwhelmed me. She says, when the Lord tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with that the love itself. Friends, this is the power to forgive. Not that we love God so much that we're going to forgive our enemies, but because he loves you so much and paid such a great price to set you free, the intent of the donor in giving you forgiveness is that you would then give it to those who have wronged you because that's what Jesus did for us. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I give you thanks that when you looked upon me, you took note of me in my sin and in my rebellion and with my impossible debt to you. And you said, I forgive you. And you took my debt upon yourself And you paid my debt for me on the cross. We give you thanks, our God and our Savior. And we consecrate to you now the elements of this table. That you administer your grace to us. That we might be forgiven and being forgiven. That we might be free in forgiving our enemies. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.